So as we turn to the word, I challenged you last week to spend seven days praying for our church, for our neighborhood, for our world. Uh, I pray that as you did that, you were blessed, that God rewarded you richly by strengthening your faith, giving you hope in the things that God has said and promised to us. And I expect that we will see God answer our prayers. And the reason that we are in the book of Ezra as a church, and and I believe that God's timing in this is perfect, is because this is a book that shows scattered people gathering and being rebuilt by a work of God. And it's my prayer that that would be true of First Baptist Church of Holly, not only as we come together after this pandemic, but as we gather together to be the church of Jesus Christ, to serve him until he returns or calls us home, that we would be able to see God at work in our church every single week. And I want to say this week, as we go to Ezra chapter 1, Remember we said that Ezra happens, I believe, in part because of the faithful prayers of Daniel. I want to say that the key to God working in a people is God stirring their hearts. Or maybe put it another way, the key to revival is God stirring hearts. And what do I mean by revival? Well, I mean a church that experiences regular joy in the Holy Spirit. Not just joy because we come together and we're friends the way that anyone else could be friends without God, but uniquely through the Holy Spirit being in us and among us, we experience the joy of God. I mean revival in the sense that a church is full of love, supernatural love for everyone. For, for people that don't necessarily live like us, look like us, or sound like us. But recognizing that all of us come before God as sinners and God loves each of us. And, and so the church that is revived is a church that is full of love because God has loved us. A, a church that is revived is a church that is growing rich in good works. And a church that is revived is a church that is growing in depth, in spiritual maturity. A church that is revived is a church that loves theology. And a church that is revived is a church that loves the Word of God, that loves all of the Word of God, that has a hunger to know all of the Word of God. And a church that is revived is a church that loves Jesus Christ passionately. Not not just the, the little popular images that we trot out at Christmas time and at Easter time, but the image of Jesus Christ that is given to us in the pages of scripture, who is full of truth and grace, who is full of God's power and majesty and glory, who says hard and difficult things, but says them out of a heart of love to bless us. A church that is revived loves the Savior. And a church that is revived is a church that is curiously joyful when times are bad. And my hope is that we will experience a supernatural, unbelievable act of God as he pours out his spirit and revives our hearts just like he did in Ezra's day. 
My prayer is that we would see him do it in our day. And I would ask that you would be faithful continuing in prayer, that you would continue what you you began last week. And I believe that we as a church can experience this if we humble ourselves before God. We can have confidence that God will bless us as we call out in him. But here is the key that I want you to see in Ezra chapter 1. The key that we need is for God himself to stir in our hearts. And what we see in this passage is God stirs in the heart of kings. He stirs the hearts of his people. And then he provides for all of the needs of his people. See, there's a huge difference between God doing a work and between people doing a work without God. To be perfectly clear, God uses regular people. He always does in human history. But people also try to do things apart from God and without God, and they may have some temporary superficial success. And that's not what I want for us as a church. My desire is that God would be active and working among us and that his working would be obvious today, just like it was in Ezra's day. So my urging for you as you see what God has done is to say, God, just do it again. Do it again. Do it again here, just like you did it there. And to begin with, I want to show you how God worked in kings and say to you that if God worked in ancient kings, he can also work in presidents and governors. So to begin with, look with me at Ezra chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses together and say a couple of things that I believe should give us hope for God to work in our place in our time today. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now in a second, I want to talk a little bit more about how God moves the heart of kings like King Cyrus. But before I do that, I want to point your attention to verse 1 and give you the foundation, the bedrock level of what God is doing here. Notice that God is faithful to his word. Notice what Ezra says about the word of God in verse 1. It says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And this didn't happen as an accident of history. This didn't happen because of political scheming. This didn't happen because of anything that God's people did apart from God. This happened because God spoke through the mouth of Jeremiah. His words were accurate. His words were inerrant. And in order to be faithful to his word, God turned the heart 
of a king who didn't even believe in him. Cyrus is not a godly man. You can learn about him from secular history. God uses an ungodly man to bring about his perfect will. And what I want to say to you today is that all of God's word is inerrant. That when God says he will do something, he does it. Now, Jeremiah had promised that God would bring his people back from captivity after 70 years. You can imagine, when we read books from 70 years ago, very often we think we are so much wiser today than they were then. If something's 70 years old, it's outdated. And in fact, I was actually looking at a book that was published in the 1840s by the American Baptist Church Association. It's published in Philadelphia, and it's a little church manual for churches. And it's a pretty old book. My copy was printed in the 1940s. So, so we're looking at something that is very old. And the funny thing is, many people would say, because it's old, it's actually not reliable anymore. Now, you can take different people who have written in modern times for what they're worth. The test is, is what they say biblical. But in Ezra's day, they were not looking at just a wise person. They were not looking at someone who had some good ideas. They were looking at a prophet who said, this is the word of the Lord. And Ezra says that in order for the word of the Lord to be fulfilled, God brought this about. And I believe that if we are going to see God work in our midst, we need to treat scripture as the inerrant word of God that is for us in our time, in our day. We're going to see throughout this book Ezra looks at things that were done a thousand years before he lived, and he says, we must do them the same way. And I believe that although this book is old, that it is inspired by God, and that although 2,000 years seems like an incredible length of time to us, it's nothing to God, and he has not changed, and his word still gives us reliable instructions. And so if we want to call out to God and seek his blessing and seek his face, we need to honor his word and listen to it and trust it and live by it. So the first point is that as God stirs in secular kings, he does so in fulfillment of his reliable word, and we need to trust his reliable word. Isaiah 44, 28 says this, and Isaiah lived even a little bit before Jeremiah. He says, of Cyrus, this is 44, 28, he says, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And so both Jeremiah and Isaiah tell that God is going to do this work in his time, in his way, and that he will move nations and kings to accomplish his will. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And you can read in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35 of another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who recognizes as God restores his reason that God alone is the Most High. King Nebuchadnezzar says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth 
are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You get the impression that God is running his program, and our responsibility is to be part of what he is doing. We don't want to invite him to just put a rubber stamp on our plans. We don't want to tell him what we think is wise and ask him to bless it. We want to seek what he says is wise and to do what he wants us to do. It's an emphasis that so many people get wrong. I remember being at camp as a kid and and talking to the guy that he was He's sort of the camp director, you know, he, he ran all the little programs. We always thought he was the coolest, most fun person alive. And he said to us one time, we were sitting at a picnic table by the snack shack, and, and he said to us real bluntly, because we're all little kids, we're thinking like probably 11 years old, 12 years old, talking about, you know, how do I know God's will for my life? Like, what, what should I do when I go to college? What, who should I marry? Like, these huge questions that 11 and 12-year-olds apparently think probably way too much about. And, and he said to us real bluntly, he said, you don't want God's will for your life. And we were all just blown away, like, what? No, you don't want God's will for your life. You want your will for your life and God to put a rubber stamp of approval on it. And when he said that, I realized how true it was of me. I had things that I desired in my life and had never considered the possibility that God had something else planned for me and that I needed to be open to what he wanted from my life. He's my maker. He, he is the one who has made us, and we owe him our very existence. He is the one who has redeemed us. And so our purpose in life is not to just seek our own desires and ask him to bless, but instead to seek what he is doing and to find our joy and blessing in knowing him and loving him. And as we do that, we will find enormous joy and that there's nothing greater to seek than the presence of God himself, that he is our highest joy and our greatest good. But it begins with recognizing that he is the one in charge. Not only does he move King Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, you can read in scripture, he does this all throughout the Bible. He moves the heart of Pharaoh so that he can demonstrate to his people his power and his ability to save. Not only does he move the heart of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, he uses Pontius Pilate to condemn Jesus Christ so that Christ dies for our sins and rises from the dead. From Genesis to Revelation, God demonstrates his complete authority over kings. He has power over the governor. He has power over the president. If you read about the book of Revelation, talking about days that I believe are in the future, you discover that kings who hate God, who want to war against him, are just pawns as God coordinates world events to establish the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And from beginning to end, God is the one who is on the throne. And why does this matter? Because this is why we pray. We are seeking the one who knows all things. We are seeking the one who plans all things, who brings about his will. And prayer is part of how it's brought about. You see it in the person of Daniel. And I want to be just like that. I want to say one day, I can see how God answered our prayers in 2020 because this is what happened as we sought the sovereign God who loves us and works in his church. And so I want to encourage you, 
recognize how God has moved the hearts of kings in the past and pray for your leaders. You know, one of the beautiful things about having a Republican president and a Democratic governor is that all of us, we have bipartisan frustration. We have the opportunity to go to the throne of grace and to plead for someone we disagree with, no matter where our political opinions lie. And so if you find the leadership of our country, if you find the leadership of our state frustrating, I want to encourage you to recognize God is the one who governs our world. And you need to pray not against leaders you disagree with and in favor of leaders you like. You need to pray for all of our leaders to be humbled before God like King Nebuchadnezzar was, to seek his face, to seek his wisdom. You need to pray for the people of our nation, our community, our world, that that we would have the freedom to worship, that we would have the freedom to, to see people saved. So pray. Don't just pray for your desires. Pray that our leaders would humble themselves before God. Pray for justice in our country and in our world. Pray for God to stir in the hearts of our leaders. So not only does God stir in the hearts of our leaders, God also stirs in the hearts of his people. God also stirs in the hearts of his people. This is my second point, and this is maybe the most important point that I want to make. I think my first point, it helps you have confidence and faith in God that he knows what's happening, that he understands it, and that he has a purpose in it, and that he will do his perfect will. I find that enormously helpful and comforting. I find it as a bedrock foundation for my prayers. But this second point is, I believe, what our church needs to hear so desperately That if we're going to see the blessing of God, we need God to stir in our hearts. Look at verse 5 with me of Ezra chapter 1. God says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Do you notice how it puts God in charge there? This is said to be a work of God on every single level. And I believe if we're going to see God bless in our church and our community and our world, we need God to stir in our hearts. I need God to stir in my heart as a pastor. You need God to stir in your heart. We need God to stir in our hearts. What does that mean? Uh, Well, let me just pause and, and ask for a question. Have you ever felt God doing something in your heart and in your life? You know, maybe, maybe you've been to camp and, and you have camp experiences where God seemed especially close and you felt God calling you to confess your sins and to experience his forgiveness and his love. You felt like you had a purpose in life that you needed to fulfill as part of God's family, as part of the church. Or maybe you can remember being in church and you can remember singing a song and just weeping as you worshiped God. There are times when God seems especially close. And I would say in some of those times, it's because the Spirit of God is stirring in your heart. Well, how do you know if that's truly the case or if you're not just being emotional? You know, it's possible to be emotional and God's not in it. Well, one of the things that happens when God stirs in our hearts is he gives us a desire to fulfill his word. See, these people knew Jeremiah's prophecy. They knew Isaiah's prophecy. And rather than being overwhelmed by the culture where they were living, by faith, they trusted that God was going to keep his promise. 
And they were willing to walk all the way from Babylon back to Jerusalem in weakness, at times in fear, trusting that as they believed God, God would fulfill all of his promises. You see, God stirred in their hearts as they trusted in his word. And so if you want to know, is God really stirring in my heart? The question is, how much are your emotions and feelings connected to what God says in Scripture? Today, we desire to know God. We want to know him through his word. We want to spread the good news of Jesus through acts of love, through faith in Jesus. We want to see people confess their sins and place their faith in the risen Christ. We want to see people baptized in obedience to Jesus. We want to live our lives not for ourselves, but for Jesus, because God has stirred in our hearts. You know, there are a couple reactions that you can have as you look at what's happening in our nation and in our world, and one of them is fear that it's just out of control and that there's no hope. And if you have that kind of reaction, what you are implying is that you don't believe that God has a plan or a purpose in any of this. You might look at the church and and think that there's no hope for the church. And if that's your reaction, what's happening is you're failing to see the good promises of God that he has in his word. And so I want to encourage you to look back, look again, recognize the situation that these people in Ezra's day were in. They were born into captivity. They didn't have the benefit of growing up near a temple where God was worshipped. You know, perhaps their parents or a few community leaders could have taught them the word a little bit, but they were surrounded by a culture that was huge and glamorous and wealthy, and the culture all around them denied the existence of their God, or if they said that he existed at all, they said that he was inferior to the gods that had allowed them to conquer the world. You know, if you visit The Oriental Institute in Chicago, there's a small little museum that's part of the University of Chicago there, and you can see some of the massive statues that were part of Babylon. And you can imagine that as the captives were walked through those gates, that they would have felt so small. They would have felt so insignificant. They would have wondered, if God is real and if God is great, why am I here? How is this happening? And to be born into that captivity, to be surrounded by a city that praised a different God, it would have made it seem hard to believe that Yahweh was even real. His temple had been destroyed. His city had been leveled. And yet, as they trusted the words of God's prophets, God did a work in their hearts and moved in his people to go back to Jerusalem. And I believe that God today can do a work in your heart and my heart to build his church in a healthy way that magnifies Jesus Christ, not just by calling people to be saved, but by calling believers to a depth of maturity so that we are full of the Holy Spirit, so that our fellowship is rich and growing and vibrant in every way. I believe this is possible as God stirs in our hearts. And so I've asked you if you've ever had that experience. I want to tell you about one time that somebody else I know had that kind of experience. So my wife and I were dating. 
we we were very involved with our church, and our church was doing a service at, at a barn that that's actually out in Goodrich. And I was a, a just out of college, kind of an arrogant theology nerd. Some people would say I'm still kind of an arrogant theology nerd. I hope that's less true than it was. But we went to this this service at a barn, and I remember hearing the guy preach. He preached a message from Hebrews, and it was a hard-hitting message. And I wrestled with it in my mind theologically, wondering if I agreed with it, wondering if I thought it was true. And, and as I'm thinking through it and engaging with it, and, and you know, we'd sang some songs, and, and at that point in my life, I was struggling to worship God a little bit. And, and what happened, I'm not going to say God stirred in my heart. What actually happened is God stirred in Lauren's heart next to me. And I watched the woman who is now my wife break down in tears because she believed that she was not being obedient to God. And she believed that there were things in her life that needed to change. And what happened in her life is she got right with God. She felt God stirring in her heart. And rather than silencing the voice of God and walking away so that she could enjoy whatever she wanted to do, she submitted to the Holy Spirit of God and acknowledged her sin and confessed it and she changed. She felt God stirring in her heart and she followed the call of God to be obedient to his voice, to allow her life to be led by him. Now, she and I, we're not perfect. There are ways that we have failed since that time. But I mention that story to say that God still stirs in the hearts of his people. Perhaps it's happening in your heart right now. You're recognizing that you have dismissed the word of God in your life. You're recognizing that you have not given it its proper place, allowing it to speak to you. And maybe you need to realize that you need to know it better. That just, uh, you know, a, a sermon on Sunday is not enough to grow, that you need to go deeper. It's my prayer that we would recognize that we need the Spirit of God to work in us if we are ever going to see the church of Jesus Christ grow in spiritual depth and maturity. That we need to seek him not weekly, we need to seek him daily. That we need to recognize that we need him to do a work in us or no work that we do will ever succeed. So God not only works in human hearts out there who rule the, the world, he works in human hearts in here to draw his people to do his work. It's my prayer that we would experience that as a church. As the people of God had the stirring of God at work in their hearts, what they discovered is that they enjoyed the provision of God and that he supplied all of their needs. So as God stirs in kings and stirs in his people, he provides for his work. And my third point today is that we can see God's provision as we follow his leading. So look at verses 6 through 11 and see how God worked in his people. It said, And all who were about them, that is, everyone around the people that God had stirred in, aided them, with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in charge of Midrashath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. 
And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, if your heart was not stirred by that particular scripture, uh, so let's talk about it for a minute, because here's what happens. As God's people had rebelled and turned their backs on him, God brought a foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar, to his city, to Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, tore down the walls, destroyed the temple, and carried off all of the gold and all of the wealth of the city from the temple, from the king's palace, everything. He carried it off to his own country. And what he was doing as he did that was he was saying, your God is powerless and I am great. And what God does here is he says, no, you're not that great. That's mine and I'm taking it back. All of the things that they brought back with them from Babylon were part of temple worship. You can read how the people of God worshiped God in the Old Testament, but all you need to know is that these are things that were dedicated to sacrifices for sins, to purification, so that God's people could live in fellowship with God and God provided for them. You can imagine as the people of God were seeing the temple torn down, as they were seeing a foreign army walk away with these things, the loss must have been just terrifying. They must have thought, we can never worship God again because there goes everything we need in order to be right with him. And yet, at the right time, when God stirred in the heart of kings, when he stirred in the heart of his people, he provided so that the people of God could worship God in perfect obedience. Now look, there are a lot of people that they might say, like, the church is done. Like, there's just no hope. Our, our needs are greater than, than we can possibly meet. And you know what? In one sense, they are right. But when the people of God are stirred by God, he always provides for them. Saints, I want to encourage you to remember the promise of God that he will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Now, sometimes God's definition of what we need is a little different than our definition of what we need. I believe our greatest need is to be close to God himself. And if he uses hardship and suffering in our lives to draw him closer, then that's the greatest blessing that he could give us. But I promise you this, as we seek God and humble ourselves before him, we will lack for nothing as a church. He will provide everything that we need. Because as the people of God humble themselves before God, they always find him faithful. If you read carefully, you will discover in Ezra, God doing for his people the exact same thing that he did for his people in the book of Exodus. How they had lived under a godless king who had oppressed them, who had made them slaves. And God brought them out with amazing power, with amazing miracles. And he provided for them generously. If you read in Exodus, it says they plundered the Egyptians who had enslaved them for 400 years. And all of the gold and all of the silver that they took from Egypt 
was turned into the tabernacle and later the temple where they worshiped God. The same thing is happening in Ezra. What Ezra is discovering is that what had happened 1,000 years before he lived was happening again in his day because God had not changed. When the people humbled themselves before him, they found God as a savior who rescued. And God is the same today. You know, we can look back at Ezra's day It's about 2,500 years ago. And some people would say that's so long ago. How do you know that any of that happened? Well, you can look at archaeology. I already mentioned, just visit Chicago. It's, It's a worthwhile trip. You can see that these are cultures that really lived. You can see the evidence that Cyrus made decrees like this, allowing people to build temples. But the thing that I want to stress to you, not only is it history, not only did it happen, but that God does not change. And he is still a savior and he will save you and he will save his church. See, Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Jesus Christ is described as the king who leads his people in victory. Not only does Jesus lead his people in victory, that he provides us with all that we need for life and godliness. He has given us gifts within our church, gifts of spiritual leadership. And some of you may need to step up and serve with the gift that God has given you. When God stirs in your heart, you need to step out in faith. And maybe you don't know yet for sure if Jesus Christ is your savior. If God is tugging on your heart and you're recognizing that you need to be right with him, I would urge you to call out to him, confess your sins, trust in the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus and be baptized in obedience to the Lord. You can contact me this week. We will set up a baptism. There might only be 10 people there, but we will film it and show the world that you are giving your life to Jesus. Jesus Christ. My prayer is that if God stirs in your heart to be saved, that you would trust him today. But that's not the only way that God stirs in hearts. God may be saying to you that you may need to be more dedicated in attending church in person. That's going to be possible very soon. We will be gathering again. And let me say to you, you cannot grow as a Christian just watching church on a screen. You need the body of Christ. You need the fellowship of believers. You need opportunities to serve with the gifts that King Jesus has given you. So if God is stirring in your heart and saying, man, I need to be part of a church, make sure that you find a good church where the word of God is preached cover to cover. They leave nothing out. Visit our church at First Baptist Church of Holly. We would love to have you. And if we're not the best fit for you, I will give you recommendations of other churches that love the word. We are blessed with so many good churches in our area. Not only might God be calling you to be more faithful in being part of a church, God might be saying that you need to humble yourself under his word. Maybe you're a believer and you've just been living your own life and looking to to God's word for occasional encouragement. You feel down so you find a verse that gives you what you need and you're not really living your life for the Lord Jesus. And maybe God is stirring your heart and saying, you need to be part of your church in a deeper way, in a bigger way. I believe some of you need to be more active in service. And we have many people who are faithful in service, and I'm so thankful for them. But we have people that could perhaps do more. Maybe God is stirring in your heart and saying, man, I want you to be part of a work at First Baptist Church of Holly, and you need to find out how to get involved, and I would love to help you with that. Maybe 
God is calling you to step up and to serve in leadership. And I believe that that's entirely possible. I would ask that you'd be open to God working in your heart. You know, there was a time in my life where I said I never wanted to be a pastor. I saw all the drama that that pastors had to deal with as people argued over flower arrangements and all kinds of things that don't matter in light of eternity. And yet God did a work in my heart that said, no, you, you can spend your life running from responsibility or you can submit to the call of God on your life and make a difference in the kingdom. And I'm not saying that I'm a perfect example or that I follow perfectly, but I have been open to the leading of God in my life, and I would encourage you to be open to the leading of God in your life. If God is calling you into leadership, don't say no. It's hard, but you will recognize the blessing of God as you follow him. And some of you, God may be calling you to be a faithful teacher, And to be a faithful teacher, you need to be a faithful student. And maybe you need to commit to knowing the word of God. And maybe you need to contact me and say, Pastor, I think I should be teaching. Is there a place that I can teach? Is there a way that I can grow as a teacher? And I would love to be able to help you with that. Some of you may be called to host small groups in your homes. And I believe that's a way that our church can grow. And I want to encourage you to be open to using your house as a place where you can exercise Christian hospitality to welcome both non-Christians and Christians into your home and to show them the love of Jesus and to share the good news of Jesus with them. If God is stirring in your heart in any of these ways, would you commit to obeying him? Church, I believe That as a church, as our entire church together, God is calling us as his people to greater obedience to his word. We need to know what he says about how churches are to function, and we need to do it. And so church, as a group, not as an individual, I speak to you as an entire group of people, as the people of God, will we humble ourselves under the word of God and seek his will for how we should do church? Will we learn from what the Bible says about how a church should be organized, how its leadership should be structured? Or will we reject what the word of God says and say, that's not for us? I believe that's the choice that we need to make and we need to make it soon. I believe as we humble ourselves under the word of God, as we seek the will of God for us, God will bless. Father, You have shown us your faithfulness. I ask that you would stir in our hearts. I pray that you would call us up to be faithful followers. That you would make us like you. That you would teach us through your words. That you would lead us in obedience to your word. That you would help us to recognize the goodness of your plans. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, do it again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.